0: Hi there and welcome to Vineyard Church Delaware County's podcast. My name is Michael Hansen. I'm the lead pastor here at the church and I am so glad that you have joined us for this week's message. I'm going to have a little bit more to say at the end, but for now, enjoy the teaching. (laughs) Ah, Good morning. How are y'all doing? Doing good. Well, it's good to see you. I want to welcome you, especially if you're new. We're really glad that you're joining us, and those that are joining us online this morning, we're glad you're with us as well. Uh, We are in a series right now uh, on the book of Revelation. Mm, It's been good, right? Entitled, The Apocalypse of Jesus Christ. And if you haven't listened to the last two sermons, so you're definitely going to want to check those out. They really are pivotal to the rest of the series. I thought Michael did a really great job kind of laying out the groundwork For how we should approach this wonderful yet slightly (laughs) intimidating book at times. One of the things that he talked about was the importance of honoring the title. And what we mean by that is that very the very first verse in revelation, that very first phrase, uh, we see the words the revelation of Jesus Christ. And the word there for revelation is apocalypse, which is Greek, and, and as it means, it means the apoc- like an apocalypse. But I don't want you to think of zombies, aliens, and end-of-the-world stuff when we say that word, when you see that word. Uh, remember the definition. Really what it means, and I don't know if I've ever heard this before, uh, but the real definition of apocalypse is an uncovering, an opening of a door, an unveiling. So remember that. And remember, too, that what we're unveiling, what we're discovering, is really a person, right? It's the revelation of Jesus Christ. And that is really what we're doing. We're pulling back the curtain on who Jesus is. We're getting this really great glimpse of him in a way that we probably would have never imagined. Also, as a recap, we have two tasks, two tasks of apocalyptic literature, And I think it's worth just reminding us of those two tasks, which is, one, to set the present moment in light of the unseen realities of the future, right? Knowing the end, where this is all going, makes all the difference in our perspective right now, right? And then also there is a second task, which is to set the present in the light of the unseen realities of the present, of the now, Because we begin to see this moment in time so differently from heaven's perspective, right? With eternal eyes. There is much more going on behind the scenes than we can see with our earthly eyes. There's so much more going on. Our guide for this series, as we've talked about a lot already, is the pastoral commentary called Discipleship on the Edge. And it's by Daryl Johnson and I don't know if you've gotten it or if you've started—I have so enjoyed reading this book. I've underlined so many things. But I especially love that not only has Daryl devoted so much of his life to studying this book, but he is especially humble in how he approaches it and how he presents his conclusions most of the time he will include various interpretations of a text because I think really he's not so focused on being right and you know having that esoteric edge on the end times you know stuff but I think he's so much more focused really on wanting us to see Jesus more clearly and you really see that in the way that he talks about Jesus presents him and talks about this book that is his goal is to present Jesus more clearly I was giving Michael a little bit of a hard time this week because what we're looking at today, which is Revelation 2 and 3, uh, takes up a third or over a third of Daryl Johnson's book, which is about, it's over 100 pages, (laughs) and I have 30 minutes, so here we go. Okay, no, (laughs) Uh, but I, I know a lot of churches have done this. We've even done this as a church. They'll deep dive into each of the seven churches, right? They'll take one weekend for one church and really deep dive. Well, what I want to do, any single one message, and I want to look at the package as a whole. And as studying these chapters, I really had no idea what looking at all seven at once could and would reveal. (laughs) And it's a message in and of itself, and it is pretty powerful. What I want to talk about today is that the form in which these seven messages is given actually says something really powerful about who Jesus is and what what he understands his church to be in and for the world. It pulls back the curtain and it reveals more about who he is and who we are as his church. So before we do that, let's just take a moment and invite the Holy Spirit and pray this morning. Well, Lord, we do. We just ask for more of you here this morning. Do you come? And we do. We approach this time and this book with a lot of humility <laughs> and awe. And we just would ask that you would help us to stay true to your intent in giving us this book. Would you direct every word that I speak, and would you help me to only say what you want me to say? Lord, we want to see you this morning. We want to see you. Would you open our eyes and ears through your power and through your word in the name of Jesus? Amen. Amen. Well, as we've discussed, we know that Revelation was written as a pastoral letter to the seven churches in Asia. And actually it's the longest pastoral letter in the entire Bible because it has seven intended recipients. And we actually read that in Revelation 1:10 through 11. It says, on the Lord's day, I was in the spirit and we're talking about John here. And I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet, which said, write on a scroll what you see and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. So if you want to go ahead, open up your Bibles, we're going to dive in to these chapters this morning. Chapters 2 and 3, you can follow along on uh, the slides as well. But because this is such a long passage, um, I really want to just listen to and read to uh, this morning. I want to read the first one and the last one, the first and the seventh And I encourage you, who haven't already, to take some time this week and read all of them. Read all seven messages to the churches. Uh, They're really, really powerful, uh, very encouraging, and also very convicting. Um, Let's start with Revelation 2, 1 through 7. And this one is to the church in Ephesus. It says, To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, These are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, and walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your deeds, your hard work, and your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked people, that you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not, and have found them false. You have persevered and have endured hardships for my name, and you have not grown weary. And yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken the love you had at first. Consider how far you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. Mm. But you have this in your favor. You hate the practices of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God." And then let's read the last one, Revelation 3, 14 through 22. To the angel of the church in Laodicea Laodicea write, these are the words of the amen, the faithful and true witness, the ruler of God's creation. I know your deeds, that you were neither hot or cold nor hot. I wish you were either one or the other. So because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. You say, I am rich, I have acquired wealth, and I do not need a thing, but you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire so that you can become rich, and white clothes to wear so that you can cover your shameful nakedness, and salve to put on your eyes so that you can see. Those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline, so be earnest and repent." Here I am, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person and they with me. To the one who is victorious, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne just as I was victorious and sat down with my father on his throne. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Well, first, I want to make some observations about this section, this passage and really by just asking a couple simple questions. And then we're going to dive into a little bit more of the application and the meaning. First question that really we should ask is, why seven? Why seven? And for those of you that, that know the Bible and have read a lot, you, you see the word seven a lot. You see that number a lot in the Bible. What we know is that in the Bible, that number seven is a number of completeness, of completeness. In speaking to the seven churches of Asia, Jesus is addressing all the churches, the whole church, in every place and in every age, all of us. And this is the one place, these two chapters, really, this is the one place where we are meant to apply this to our cultural moment. We are meant to. And though the intended audience is corporate, it's a corporate group of people, I would challenge you, you cannot read these chapters without one of them heading home in your life. It's, it, they're powerful and very convicting. So then why these seven churches? Why just these seven? Like we said, these are seven real historical congregations But there were other congregations in Asia, you know, like the Colossians. So why not address them? Why these seven? And well, really, it's thought that these seven churches of Asia embody every major issue with which the church has struggled in every age and in every cultural setting. No matter who you are, this can apply to your church. Mm. Yeah. (laughs) And then another question who are these angels? Who are these angels? There are really just three options here. We can take the word angel to refer us to real, actual angels, supernatural, heavenly beings. Or we can take the word angel to refer to the human messenger of God's word, like the preaching pastor of the church, since the word for angel in Greek means just simply messenger but I'd recommend, please don't call us angels. Please don't call us that. That's kind of weird. Uh, but third, it could also be that the word angel is meant to be metaphorical, referring to the ethos of each church or the spirit of each church. But what we see in Revelation is, is really that every time the word angel is used, it refers to supernatural beings, not human beings. So strictly on grammatical grounds, Uh, we should probably lean toward that first option. That first option, which means that Jesus is speaking to the guardian angels of each of these churches. Hmm. What's clear is that we know that Jesus is speaking to the angel of each church, but it's meant for the ears of that church. The message to the angel is actually a message through the angel to the church. So then, next question, what is the pattern? The pattern, I mean, as as you heard that first and seventh message read, you started to notice there is a similar pattern in how they're formatted, a similar flow. Each message is different in its content, but similar in its format. So let's briefly look at this pattern because it's actually kind of important. Jesus first introduces himself. Starts out introducing himself to each of the churches. He uses some kind of self-designation, but he uses images from the initial apocalypse we read about last week in Revelation 1. He uses different images to describe himself that uniquely tie into the spiritual, cultural, and political dynamics of that specific city. It's real cool when you start to see how he describes himself to that specific church. There's real meaning in it. And then Jesus tells each church what he knows about what's going on. And he repeats this phrase. You'll see it over and over again, which is the words, I know that, I know that. And remember from chapter one, it is while he is standing in the middle of the seven lampstands, which represent the seven churches, that Jesus then dictates these messages which is why Jesus can say, I know, I know. I know what's happening among you because I'm right there. I'm right there in the middle of what's going on. I'm with you, right? He's not far off looking down. He's there in the midst of these churches. He's in the middle. He can say, I know you because I know your hard work. I know your struggles. I know your fears. I know your pain because he's there and he's in our midst. It's in the knowing that he calls out, kindly enough, something positive about each church, except for the seventh church, which is Laodicea. For each church, it is very personal to them. There is a validation and a word of life spoken over each church that is very deeply specific to them. Have you ever had a prophetic word hmm, that makes you feel so seen by God so known and so loved because it was so deeply specific to you. Anyone? Where you're like, this person could never know what they are saying. No one knows that about me. Only God could know that about me. And it hits home in a way that nothing else can. Well, this is, this is what Jesus does here. And you can tell that he loves and he knows these churches well. He then changes it. And he actually tells them what he dislikes. So what he likes, but then also what he dislikes. And he repeats the phrase, I have this against you. And he has these words of criticism for most of the churches, except for the second and the sixth church, which is Smyrna and Philadelphia. Interesting enough is because those were the two cities that were under overt persecution. Churches under persecution, he has absolutely no critical word for. Hmm. Here we see a different kind of conviction, though. It unveils what's really going on in each seemingly successful church. And Jesus pretty much says, guys, I, I know what's going on. I know your heart. And I see the ways that the enemy has convinced you to compromise. And I'm calling it out both the good and the bad, so that you do not walk in deception and darkness anymore. He's bringing stuff to the light. And then he tells each church what they actually need to do to remedy the situation. It's just great. Warning them of what actually will happen, though, if they don't do it. And so he says things like, remember and repent, do what you used to do, right? We heard that, wake up, open the door. He is very instructive with the churches here and very direct. Jesus is passionately protective of his church, passionately protective. And he doesn't leave them just to figure it out on their own. You know, here's all the stuff you're doing bad. Good luck with that. (laughs) He actually directs them. He mercifully shows them the way back. And then he makes these beautiful promises to each of the churches, really for those who overcome, for those who overcome. And we know from the rest of Revelation that to overcome means to hold fast to who Jesus is under pressure to compromise. Mm. To overcome, I'm gonna say that again, means to hold fast to who Jesus is under pressure to compromise they are powerful promises. If you even just go through just the promises, they were powerful. We can all be encouraged by them. And then lastly, Jesus says these words. He says the word here, Hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches. Each message ends with this, like some form of this exhortation at the end of each one. Really, seven times he's like, "Here, here, 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 here." Like it's just constant. You're like, "Okay, get it." Like I'm supposed to listen, okay? But but the word here for here is the Greek word akouo, and it means to attend to, to consider what is or has been said, to comprehend, to understand. It is so important. We will see this repeated throughout Revelation. Hearing and seeing are really important, really important. And Daryl Johnson actually says this. He says, it is when we hear Jesus that we see Jesus. Hmm, that's good. Jesus doesn't want these messages to just go in one ear and out the other. He wants them and us to chew on them, to chew on them, to wrestle with them, to hold them up to our lives, to see him and ourselves differently because of the revelation and apocalypse that they bring. Mm. So last question then. What is the genre? I'm sure you are wondering that. <laughs> Heather, what's the genre? <laughs> when we say genre, what do we mean? What do we mean? You remember Andrew at the beginning of the year, he was talking about how to read the Bible and he talked about this word a lot. Really what it means is simply the literary composition, the literary composition, how it is distinguished in its particular style, form or content, How is it distinguished? And this is where we start to see the uniqueness of these specific chapters. This is where I want to land today. You're like, really, Heather? The genre? That's what what you want to harp on? Yes, it is. Just give me a second, okay? Uh, Daryl Johnson specifically calls the content of Revelation 2 and 3, just specifically 2 and 3, the messages he calls them the messages, he doesn't refer to them as letters as they have traditionally been called throughout the church and throughout time. This is because the seven messages are not written in letter form. They're not written in letter form. Now, the whole of Revelation, the revelation of Jesus Christ, now we know that, it's a pastoral letter, it is written in letter form, but the seven messages of Revelation 2 and 3 are not. It's like they jump out of character for a moment and they're saying something different. So the New Testament scholar, David Owen, points out that the seven proclamations exhibit not a single characteristic feature of early Christian apostolary tradition, which must have been a result of deliberate choice. Mm. What we have in Revelation 2 and 3 is a whole new genre, this is a new form of communication which in and of itself is making a statement about who Jesus is and who he thinks we are. The medium is the message. What? The medium <laughs> is the message. Mm. So let's unpack this. The genre, the genre of the seven messages is a combination of two genres which would have been very familiar to these churches— they would have picked up on it right away. Now, in our day and age, we just don't hear this because it's not in our context, right? We don't hear it the way they would have heard it. So let's unpack that. It is a unique mix of what would be called an imperial edict, Mm, sounds important, imperial edict, right, of the Gentile world that would be like the Roman Empire. And then it was also a mix of a prophetic oracle, Mm, That's cool. Prophetic oracle of the Jewish world, okay? So you have the secular and the religious, and, and you hear it in the tone of these messages. There's something commanding about them, but also prophetic in the way they're spoken. So on one hand, Jesus speaks as a king to his churches. He speaks as a king addressing his subjects like the imperial edict of that day. This is strikingly similar in style to Caesar's edicts of the day sent to local municipalities in the Roman Empire. Here, Jesus is issuing solemn and authoritative edicts to each church. But then on the other hand, Jesus speaks as God, addressing his worshippers like a prophetic oracle, speaking to his people as the living God, issuing a word of warning and blessing, and with eerily specific terms known specifically to them, like a prophetic word. The genre of the seven messages itself shockingly reveals and proclaims Jesus as the world's true emperor and God. Jesus is the world's true emperor and God. And this was indirect assault to their culture at the time, to their beliefs, to the times these churches were living in, both in a Jewish and a Roman context, because for the Roman Empire, we know that no one but Caesar could be called emperor and lord. And for the Jews, only Yahweh could be called emperor and lord. This was a radical and is a radical claim. Now also, in each of these seven messages, we also hear the phrase repeated over and over. And it's almost we would almost go right over it, not realizing that it's, imp- its importance, But Here we hear the phrase over and over, to the church of, to the church of, and it's repeated seven times. Now, the word that Jesus uses in these seven messages is the Greek word ekklesia. It's where we get our word church, okay? Ekklesia. That's the word he chooses to use here. And Larry Hurtado says that ekklesia is an interesting choice, It's an interesting choice of words to designate a gathering of Christian believers. It's interesting because in the first century, the word ecclesia had no religious connotations. Ecclesia had no intentional religious orientation at all. There were a host of other words at Jesus' disposal that were more religious, but he doesn't use those. Interestingly, the Jews at the time did not use this word to coin or to describe their gatherings. They preferred the word synagogue to ecclesia. And likewise, with the Roman Empire, even though they would have lots of civil gatherings, they would rarely use the word ecclesia. So it appears that the early Christians deliberately adopted and preferred a distinctive self-designation, a term not used by the pagan, or Jewish religious groups to refer to their gatherings. Hmm. Ecclesia was about the business of the city, just simply meant it was a gathering about the business of a city. And that's the word that Jesus uses here for church. Is this how we view church? <laughs> Is that how we view our gatherings? Is this what we understand church to be in our time? gathering to conduct the business of a city, to conduct the business of the kingdom of God in the midst of the kingdoms of this world. Mm. In light of Jesus also calling believers, this word ecclesia, Daryl Johnson proposes a different definition for church. He says, we are ordinary, broken people summoned by, this is important, summoned by and gathered around the crucified and risen and ascended and coming Jesus to share in the life of Jesus and to be engaged in the business of Jesus in this city. Mm. The church is not supposed to be a so-called religious organization in name only, sprinkled with a few Christian ethics. Mm. How many people have been hurt by those religious organizations? Yeah? I know, I have quite a few friends even right now that I can name that, are, that have been deeply hurt. Not just, you know, a little wounded just because we're broken people, but incredibly hurt by religious organizations, really who are effectively run by people who you know, just tap God's name onto whatever they're doing. They think they're doing it all for God, but they've actually just left him behind. And I'm not the one saying this. This is, this is Jesus calling this out. And really, if I'm honest, that thought shakes me <laughs> to my core. Uh, I'm like, Lord, please do not let me unknowingly leave you behind but I'm doing this for God, look at me, I'm doing this for God, you know, all the while leaving you behind. Oh my goodness, that shakes me. It reminds me of the story in Luke 2. Do you remember the story of Mary and Joseph? This is so comforting to me, Uh, where they leave Jesus behind when he's 12. You remember the story? Uh, What did they do? They presumed that he was with them. Oh, that guts me. Luke 2, 40 43. After the festival was over, while his parents were returning home, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem, but they were what? Unaware of it. Thinking or presuming that he was in their company, they traveled on for a day. And then they began looking for him among their relatives and friends. Have you ever had moments in the last couple of years where you have gotten your head down, you know, you're in survival mode and you just keep on walking, you just keep on walking. And, and then you have one of those awakening moments of discipleship and you're like, oh, I, pres- I presume that Jesus was with me and that he was in my company. But now I'm waking up to the realization that I haven't really sensed his presence recently, and I'm not really experiencing any intimacy with him. I think I must have left him behind. I must have left him behind. What is our priority supposed to be as the church, as people of God? It is to host the presence of God. It is to host the presence of God, to walk so closely. With God, to walk with him. Jesus said this is the first and the greatest commandment, the highest principle, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, your mind, your strength. That's the priority, to walk closely with Jesus, to experience his love, and to love him in return. Are we a church who first and foremost responds to, and follows Jesus? Do we as leaders first pray and ask and seek the Lord before we make major decisions? You know, right here, you can start to see the divide. And I'm not talking about like long-winded prayers, you know, like just to check a box or because you're just scared you're gonna do something wrong and not be in God's will. Like it's not out of a place of fear. I'm talking about your heart. Is your heart quick? to pray, to talk to God about all the things, all the things in your life. Like, what do you think, God? Should I go with my God on this one? Or do you have something to say? It could take less than a second, but where's your heart? Boy, I, if I'm honest, there are moments when it's, I, I have to remind myself to get off the autopilot and check with, check with the Lord on what's going on in my life. I think a lot of us a lot of us we need to wait just for that little quick moment and ask him to speak. What what do you want to say about this God? Maybe even open our bibles. What do you want to show us, God? We do not do life and we do not do church apart from relationship with Jesus. Do we believe he is here? Have we had an apocalypse? Do we see him near? Do we believe that he even wants to speak to us? Will we just keep running our own lives in our own way, in the driver's seat, not believing that he actually wants to and that he can, that he's actually the best one to lead our lives? Many of us default into running our own lives, like I said, because really at the core, we just, we believe a lie. (laughs) We believe a lie. Like maybe the one like, well, I can't hear God. So, well, how am I supposed to do this? You know how am I supposed to do that? I can't hear him. Which is a lie. <laughs> or that he doesn't want to speak to me because I know what I did and I know who I am. And you know, everyone else might see something, but God knows what I did. So why would he want to like actually speak to me or direct my life? Or maybe it's just simply about God. Maybe it's a lie about who he is, that he isn't the good and loving father that we see in Jesus. Are we willing to ask? Are we willing to seek? Are we willing to knock? Because he promises to open the door if we do. You know, this passage is shockingly, shockingly reveals Jesus as the emperor of emperors and the God of gods and the king of kings and the Lord of lords. And it reveals that we, the church, are meant to be a local group of kingdom people summoned by and gathered around that king. That's our job. Our role as a church body is to respond to his summoning and gather around him in worship to be radically different, but also be a radical blessing to our local area. That's our our job. Like I said, this is the one section where we are absolutely meant to apply this to our cultural moment. So how do we do that? Well, each of these messages have one major purpose. In the words of Eugene Peterson, he puts it well, to help disciples of Jesus live in the world, but not of the world. Oh, I love that. There's one thing I could ask Jesus, like, Lord, just show me how to do that well. Show me how to do that well. We cannot but worship in this world something or someone. We, we cannot not. We, we just will. We are worshipers at our core. The question is, who will it be or what will it be? The powers of our culture or Jesus? The powers, the principalities and powers of this world or, or Jesus? Uh, it's interesting when you actually look at the word culture. The word culture is a byproduct of our word worship the, the root word of culture is cult, coming from the Latin verb meaning to worship. What? Did you ever know that culture, the word culture, the influencing sway of what's going on in our world, that that actually means worship? What? Who and what are we worshiping? And do we even know? The greatest danger in this passage that we see over and over addressed to each of these churches is spiritual complacency and compromise. Believers were uncritically benefiting from the riches and comforts of their time, of their age, and unaware of it. As theologian and emeritus professor D.A. Carson observed, whew, here we go, it's a good one. People do not drift toward holiness. Apart from, and this is key, grace-driven, grace-driven effort, people do not gravitate toward godliness, prayer, obedience to Scripture, faith, and delight in the Lord. We drift toward compromise, and we call it tolerance. Ouch. (laughs) We drift toward disobedience, and we call it freedom. We drift toward superstition and call it faith. We cherish the indiscipline of lost self-control, and we call it relaxation. We slouch toward prayerlessness and delude ourselves into thinking we have escaped legalism. We slide toward godlessness and convince ourselves we have been liberated. Hmm. What we know is that the battleground in this life isn't against other people, but it's over our time and our money and our attention and our energy, our hearts. The battle is over our hearts. Revelation calls us all over the place to critically evaluate who we are listening to here and who we and what and what we are looking at, see, hear and see, repeated all throughout the book. We have a hard time trusting in and obeying Jesus in our life because we are not listening to and looking at the right things. Sure, we're listening and looking all the time. (laughs) But it's just that we are not listening and looking at primarily and mostly Jesus. Jesus. Jesus is calling us to be the church. To be the church and to orient our lives around Him, the true King, the true King. Are we, as we are called, are we going to be quick responders to His Spirit? And are we going to be quick responders to the needs of our city? I pray so. All amen. Well, as the worship team comes back up, I want to I want to extend an invitation to anyone who has never encountered God before to do that today. I just had a picture of Jesus just holding out his hand to you, just holding out his hand to you and saying, will you walk with me? Will you do this with me? Don't leave me behind. Do this with me. And I encourage you this morning If that's tugging on your heart, even a little bit, just say yes to Jesus. Like, God, I don't know what this all looks like. I don't know what it all means, but I know I need you. So I'm gonna say yes to you this morning. Would you do that? Would you take time today to pray and ask God into your life, that you would live in relationship with him for the rest of your life? And I would even encourage you at the end of our service to come forward. We would love to pray for you. We would love to bless that decision this morning. For the rest of us, let's just go ahead and stand. Let's go ahead and stand. And we're going to go back into a time of worship. Well, thanks so much for joining us today. I hope that what you heard has encouraged you in your walk with Jesus. For more information and to contact us, go to vcdc.org. We'll bless you. Have a wonderful week.